Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, I'm really grateful this morning for the eldership team and the other leaders here and all the ministry team leaders who've ha- helped make two services possible. We had no idea this fall that COVID would be coming, right? But how convenient that we've been able to continue doing this and continue growing, having guests, welcoming people, and growing here in Helena. Little did we know, or others moving to Helena, that COVID would happen, and that come April and May, when they had plans to move here and to find a church, that it would be in such a weird season like this, when it's difficult to make new friends and develop new relationships, that it still would be possible to find a church and find a spiritual family to plug into. I'm grateful for all of you leaders and ministry team people who are serving right now and helping this season uh, actually go so well. JR has been leading us the last couple of weeks and last week specifically uh, into areas of breakthrough in our life and visiting areas that we can experience breakthrough, but really experience God's freedom, the freedom that comes with the truth. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. I'm going to take a moment and pray together, but you can turn to the armor of God, or as some Bibles title it, I better like it titled, The Whole Armor of God, putting on the full armor of God, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 10, but let me pray. Father, we come before you, and not only to worship you, and to exalt your name and your presence, and recognize that even when we don't see you working, You are working. You're working in our lives. You're surrounding us with the knowledge, and not just the knowledge, but the experience of your love and your mercy and your forgiveness in our life. And we welcome you here. We worship you. But God, right now, we also turn to your word, and we ask that, God, you would open our hearts and open our minds and open our spirit and our soul to receive from your word. God, you mean to encourage us and to strengthen us this morning. You, op- you mean to open our eyes and let us see things the way you see them. Even like Elijah's servant, you changed his eyesight and you let him see what was really happening spiritually. I pray that you'd open ours in your word this morning. God, you'd open our hearts to see ourselves better this morning and where you want to grow us and change us and renew us and strengthen us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, so we are in Ephesians, and the letter of Ephesians is one of those letters that was meant to be a traveling letter. It wasn't written just to one church. Paul had instructed uh, Tychius to to make make sure that this letter gets around, that all the churches receive the encouragement that was written to the Ephesians. And So Paul has been teaching about Christian living and how Christians should be living and how they should relate to one another in their own homes, but in their businesses and in their communities. And in this portion that we're looking at today, he's getting ready to say goodbye. He's getting ready to sign off, but yet he's given some of his best instruction here, finally getting to the point that he really wants to get to. Let's read through it together before we dive in deeper. In verse 10, he says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, 
against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm then. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In getting ready to sign off in his letter, Paul is literally that. He is a prisoner. He's an ambassador in chains. I don't know for sure. Maybe even chained to one of those Roman guards or Roman officers or Roman soldiers. And Paul's contemplating the difficult season yet ahead for the church. For the churches that he's helped plant, that he's been a part of, that he's been strengthening, that he's been encouraging, that he's been writing this letter of love to, saying, this is how the church, this is how Christians should live. This is how they should be in their homes. This is how they should relate to one another. This is the kind of gatherings I don't want them to give up on because it's going to be important. And he's saying, here's some of the protection that you can take on. Please find the ambition and the motivation yourselves to do this, to take up this armor, to protect yourself, to be ready, to be seasoned. He's thinking of those times and seasons that are still ahead for the church. At that time, the believers and the followers of Christ absolutely believed in the things that Paul's talking about. They absolutely believed in evil spirits. They absolutely believed in that there were powers and demonic activity and that there was something out there to harm them, to cause them harm, to bring confusion, to be a counterfeit, to get them to think otherwise. Today, it's really difficult for me to understand, but I have to realize the reality as well that even churches who may believe in God still have a hard time believing that. A hard time acknowledging that there's evil forces and evil powers, that there are evil spirits around us. Paul's using these words and he makes no mistake. He's saying, make no mistake. I'm not talking about humans here. Cosmic powers, we're going to look at that in a second. Another version says worldly powers or authorities. And he's saying, make no mistake, I'm not talking about flesh and blood. I'm talking about evil spirits. I'm talking about fallen angels. I'm talking about presence. Even that C.S. Lewis describes in some of his, his writings, 
the different classes or classifications or different types, if you will, of the fallen angels that are out there. Paul's thinking of the same things, and he's trying to give the wisest and the best counsel. He's not trying to just bring doomsday, but he's actually trying to be an encouragement and say, find ambition, find motivation, hear me in these things, take this up, and don't leave one piece laying down. I think he's having some of these thoughts when this picture is staring him right in the face. Again, I don't know if he's chained to one. Some of the Christians had escaped prison by this point, you know. Not just them, but because the Christian church was at home praying, some of those jail cells had rattled open. Some of those centurions in fear for their own life, some of those Roman soldiers in those jail cells chained to some of those Christian believing people had even given their lives to Christ right there for fear of saving their own life. What might happen to them? Maybe he was chained to one, but no doubt there was some in proximity anyway, and this picture's in his mind. And he starts painting this picture. He starts translating for you and I what this Roman soldier's wearing into a language that's helpful and appropriate for you and I. Put on the full armor of God. Like this man is dressed for protection, for readiness, for defense, for offense. You too, prepare yourselves. Put it on. That's what we're looking at this morning. In the Old Testament, Israel battled for something that was very earthly. And their battleground was here on earth. And it was for something that we read about in the Old Testament, the promised land. And the Old Testament was a continual battle of defending and protecting and rebuilding this promised land. And yet Paul's writing about a different kind of battlefield. It's like the whole universe is the battlefield. He's not even just saying earth. He's saying all of earth and, and the heavenlies. All space in the heavens and on the earth. And it's a battleground not for a place, not for a certain containment of walls, it's for the souls of men and women. And he's saying to fight this fight, you've got to put these things on. You've got to have these things on. You've got to be protected. You've got to be guarded. And you have to be ready. Paul believed the heavens and the earth was the battleground for the souls of mankind. He uses these words, rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to challenge you to think about it. To think about the things that Paul's writing about here. And I want to challenge your worldview a little bit anyway. I think it's easier to read this and to read Paul's words in church and think about do I agree or disagree with Paul? I believe in God, but do I really believe in these spiritual forces and these authorities that he's talking about that aren't just Democrats or Republicans or communists or activists or rioters, right? But do I believe that something else exists? And it's one thing to agree here, and yet it's another thing to live life outside of the church and outside of reading God's word and being reminded of those things and look at our own lives and go, do I really believe that? If I do believe it, what do I do about it? What does this armor look like in my life? I get what it looks like in Sunday school 
when we project a picture of a Roman soldier on the wall and we say, here's his, here's his sword, here's his shield, here's what it looks like, but what does it look like in your life? And Paul's speaking in these words in a context that they can understand, but really trying to make a translation that would translate to our faith and our walk with Christ. We hear of people who undoubtedly believe these things, and some of us still question what they're saying. There are people like Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a Scottish writer, and you may recognize some of his works. He was the author of Treasure Island, and he was the creator of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The Strange Cases, right, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Robert Stevenson talked about, and not in just full disclosure or description, but he remembers the day when he was in an Edinburgh train station on a cold and windy morning. He said he remembers meeting Satan in that train station. He remembers a presence and a description. And to him, he would absolutely agree with Paul that there are evil spirits, there's evil influences, there's princes and powers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces who are on the earth today, he was aware of, and he said, I know I met Satan right there in that train station. Wow. But what do we do about it? We know that. But how does it shape or change or alter our life? Paul's trying to do that. He's using a word that is only used one time in the Bible to describe that cosmic powers. It's a Greek word. Uh, it's cosmok fator. Cosmok fator. And in the Greek, to go back to some of the root words, it does mean that it's a ruler of this world. It's one of the, uh, that is of the world that's asserting its independence from God. It's used of the angelic or demonic powers controlling this world. And he's using it, again, to clarify. Sometimes we read over those words, and, and it's easy to read over the part that says, uh, not of flesh and blood, and yet we still don't take it wholly and seriously. But he really is not talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about these other things. And he has that picture of that Roman soldier staring him in the face, maybe chained to the end of his hand. But what Paul's convinced of is that there is an invisible war that he's trying to make visible to us. There's a war that's happening that's invisible and with something visible standing before him and looking him in the face, he's trying to make it visible to us. When he says things like, stand therefore, having fastened on belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That belt of truth is a belt that would be under the armor and it would go on the tunic of the soldier and it had to be something that was free and yet useful. It's what the sword would hang on to. It's what the rest of the armor would go around but it had to allow for freedom and for mobility for quickness. Some people wander through life guessing and feeling their way through. 
but fastened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christians are meant to be free. To be free with the truth of God. It's not meant to hedge us in. It's not meant to tighten us down and be painful when we sit. It's not meant to just tell us, hey, you're getting a little chubby. Or your pants need to be pulled up. It's meant to be freedom. It's meant to serve as protection, as a guard, and have a purpose and intentionality to it. And the truth is to be that in the life of a Christian to the point of freedom and quickness. The breastplate of righteousness, likewise, is meant to be a protection. There's nothing that protects like putting on the righteousness of Christ, of being aware of your sin and your fault, the sins of your past, and yet Christ gave his life that our righteousness, the quality of our righteousness, if you will, wouldn't matter anymore because my righteousness is now found in him. He has put on a cloak of righteousness, a breastplate of righteousness upon us. And, when, and let me tell you, that stands up to accusation. I have faults, and people who watch me and scrutinize me, they will find faults. They'll find a temperament. They'll find ways that I say things. They'll find my motives, and they'll find that they're not good. And yet, when the breastplate of righteousness that has to be put on of Christ is on you, it's impenetrable. It can't be penetrated. When the accuser comes against you, when the evil schemes of the accuser comes against you, he won't find a way in. He won't find a place, a foothold upon you who are found in Christ, found in right standing, that word, righteousness, in right standing with God. And it has to be put upon you. You can't make it yourself. You can't do it yourself. You can't fake it. You have to rely upon God and his righteousness that he gives and puts on you. It'll stand the schemes of the enemy and the accuser. The enemy comes to us in three basic ways. I mentioned them a little bit earlier. One, he wants to teach us false things, false doctrine. Paul warns over and over in Scripture, beware of false thinking. Beware of lies. And it doesn't matter how much. It's easy to identify the whoppers, right? It's easy to identify the whoppers. And yet Paul's warning the church, it doesn't take a whopper to be false. A little bit of a lie will take you further and further away from the truth. You have to know the truth. You have to have that belt around you for freedom, for protection, but for right standing. The other is confusion. He comes into our life with confusion. Again, to take us a little bit off from the truth. We've had these little storms coming in this week. At the end of this week, they've been pretty nice, right? The other day we went hiking just yesterday on the deal, head, deal trailhead and, and uh, Cole loved summoning at the top and seeing the fogginess. Oh, Dad, look at the fogginess above those trees. Look at the fogginess way out there in the valley. Look at that storm 
taking over those mountains. And as beautiful and pretty as that is, the enemy wants to do the same in our thinking, in our conversations that we're about to have with our family members, with our coworkers. He wants to bring in fogginess and confusion, just like he did in Adam and Eve's life and say, really, is that what God said? Do you think that's what he meant? Just a little bit of confusion. Just a little seed for you to keep mulling over and thinking over. That's why you have to know the truth. That's why the truth has to be prevalent to lead us to freedom. And lastly, he's a counterfeit. He comes in our lives to pretend and to imitate. To make up something new and different based on the real thing. He knows we're made of emotions and feelings and if he can play with those things and have something that's similar but a little bit different he too can lead us in another direction a little further away from the truth in hopes of derailing us and taking the belt of truth off of us i love this next part in verse 15 it says and shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. My dad was a horseshoer all growing up, and he shod horses, and so I love the version that says, your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. Many of us, we go and pick up our shoes. We go to the store to find the right shoe that fits just right. But horses, that's not the case. If you've ever seen a horse be shod or trimmed or have shoes put on it, that shoe needs shaped, but so does the foot. The feet of a horse grows wings at the back of the heels if they're not wore off on the sides by rocks and clefts and trails on a hill. A horse that spends so much time out in the valley and down low and in soft land, he grows wings, and those wings have to be cut off and they have to be trimmed. And if they're not climbing in front of them, the toes don't get wore off and they have to be trimmed back to the point that even the inside of the foot, the frog of the hoof becomes infected and diseased and fungied it's like a heart to the foot it has to be pressed on and pushed on by even hard soil and rocky soil to keep that heart healthy the heart of that hoof and the foot and paul's saying your feet need to be trimmed and shod and shaped it's convenient today to go pick out shoes back in the day there was a lot less selection there's no way it could be done online and there's no way you were getting a return if you did. You got what you got, and your feet had to shape to that. And I feel that process in my own life with the readiness of the gospel. When I think about being ready of sharing the hope of Jesus Christ, I too have to be shaped. There's times that I'm so ready, and there's so nobody that wants to listen to me. And we've all felt the temptation. We've had those moments when we know someone's ready and they really want to hear something and yet our mouths are so quiet and so stale and so not quick or ready to share the hope that's inside of us. I need to be shod with readiness, with an eagerness to share the good news. The shield of faith. I thought you kids might like this one. Those of you kids, we love having you in here with us. It's kind of like going back to the old school, small church days, small community, right? When 
Everybody was in there for the one message that the small town preacher shared, including the kids. I remember being a kid like these kids here today and growing up in church and bringing my drawings and whatnot. But Paul's painting this picture, and he uses a word that's not for a small shield. It's not the small round one. Captain America's pretty awesome and pretty amazing, but Paul's not using his Captain America shield for this word in here. He's using the MAGA, the Big Daddy shield, the big oblong shield that's made of two pieces of wood that are laminated together, if you will. And it's a dense and it's a thick wood that's meant, as oddly as it sounds, a wood that's meant to extinguish a fiery arrow, a fiery dart. But it's possible one of the most dangerous weapons on the field at that time was undoubtedly those fiery darts and fiery arrows. If they didn't hit you, if they didn't strike you, they'd strike the ground near you, and hopefully there's enough of them to cause a raging fire, and you have to get out of the stronghold that you're in, whether it's ground or fortress. You have to move. And as you have to give up your position and move, you become more vulnerable. But if you get hit with that thing, it's not just a piercing. It's not just an arrow that's going to hold some compression and help slow down the bleeding. It's something that's going to burn you. That baby is covered with pine tar, with sap and with pitch and with fibers of rope that are cut up and shredded to ignite and to be on there. And that arrow is dipped in that and lit on fire before it's launched. So whether it hits you or not, it has a purpose. That's to expose you. It's to injure you. It's to make you move and give up your position. It's made to help conquer you. And yet Paul says we have one of the greatest weapons against that. Against the schemes of the enemy and his fiery darts, we have faith. And faith is made to extinguish. It's made to put out. Like that arrow sinking into that shield, dropping into that shield, it will phase out and burn out. It'll burn the arrow before it's really meant to burn that shield while it's protecting the man be behind him. And then, have you seen those pictures where there'd be two soldiers, right? And there's one down here and he's holding his shield and there's another one who's got the shield up above them, right? And so there's two of them back to back covering one another and behind those shields, they're fully protected from that direction. I love that picture in my mind as well. And faith is meant to do that. It's meant to extinguish the temptation that comes from the enemy's darts. For Paul, faith is a complete trust and reliance upon Christ. It's that shield, a complete trust. I don't know how this battle is going to turn out. I don't know what the outcome is, but I'm not going to fear those arrows. My faith is going to extinguish them. I don't know how, but it works. It happens. When we walk closely with Christ, we don't have to fear every temptation around every corner. When our eyes are on Christ and walking with Christ, his perspective, his righteousness for me, not just my faults, but his gains, his wins in my life, I don't have to worry about every temptation sneaking up on me, ambushing me, and taking me down. The next one's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation in verse 17. Salvation is a tricky thing. We 
unless you read God's word and you dig into God's word, it just seems like such a final thing. But if you read God's word, it doesn't seem like just a final one, one shake deal, does it? The word of God says our salvation is worked out and it's being worked out. It's something that we absolutely can count on. It's not something that you have to worry about and you wonder, is it real or not? It absolutely is, and yet it's something that is being worked out. It's not something that's just one moment, one instant. It's something that is continuing to work out this salvation in my life. It's something that is past tense, it is present tense, and it is future tense. And a lot of times when we hear the word or the, hel- the phrase helmet of salvation, we think of something that's already been done, that's already been accomplished. It certainly has in the work of Jesus Christ, and yet the work of Jesus Christ is ongoing. It's still happening. And so it's future tense as well. It's forgiveness for the sins of my past as well as a strength to conquer sin in my days ahead. The sword of spirit or the word of God. It's a weapon of defense against my own sin. The word of God is, is a defense of mine. It's meant for me. It's meant for me to have God's playbook in my own hands. It's also Uh, It's also a weapon of defense against the sins of the world. It's also God's plan to deal with, to heal through and to overcome and to bring breakthrough in my own life, to bring freedom. Again, not judgment, not condemnation, not banishment, but freedom in my own life. I want to bring up that Derek Prince quote I shared in January when I preached a message and it's about the word of God and Derek Prince says this he says do you want to know how much God means to you ask yourself how much does God's word mean to me the answer to the second question is the answer also to the first God's God means as much to you as his word means to you just that much and no more That's meant to be a motivation, to be a spurring. That we would be in God's word because we love God, because of God's love for us. Not just for my game, not just for me to win some game. Simon Sinek talks about the difference of games and difference of thinking. He's a leadership guru and a motivational guy. and He has these crazy thoughts that I really like. And love, and he talks about a game that's being played. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, honestly. Um, But he talks about these infinite and finite games and how business people and leaders, strategists, how they so often are playing such a finite game. They're just trying to outdo somebody and compete with somebody else and stay at the top of the game. But he's saying people who are infinite, who are playing an infinite game, who are leaders who think infinitely are seeing how long they can stay in the game that they know is going on and on and it's going to outlast them but they want to give their best their best ingenuity their best creativity to it not just to compete with someone else and stay at the top but to stay at the top 
and to stay in the game for as long as they can. And I think all of us Christ followers, we understand that idea and that thinking of an infinite game versus a finite game much more than most people do, right? Because that is what we are in. We're in a battle that's infinite. It's invisible, but it's infinite. It's something that's going to outlast us, that's going beyond us. And yet God in his mercy and his grace chooses us to be on the battlefield with him. He's saying, now take up armor. Take up these things and fight a good fight. Fight in a way that you know you are going to be standing. And when everything's done, you'll still be standing in that infinite, invisible war that's around us. I'm not at all trying to compare the season that we are in here in America today and across the globe. It's a different, it's a weird season. I'm not trying to say that it's the same in any way to the season of the early church. They were in an incredible difficulties and unique situation. And yet what I'm saying is I think these words pertain to us as much today, absolutely as much today to where we are at as Christ followers and the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today, but in our communities, in our homes, to our children, to our coworkers, to the people that we are building community with and living the mission with, these words are just as prevalent and just as real and motivating to me. Paul is finishing up with the last weapon that I think is one of the greatest weapons and I'm very provoked by in this message. I, I don't, I speak as much to myself and hoping that someone out there listens as to anybody else, but I, I hear God provoking me in the way Paul is talking about prayer in this next portion of scripture. In verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit, the weapon or the armor that prayer is, the greatest weapon being prayer. Three things he's demonstrating and saying about prayer here that I see, he's saying do it constantly. Doing it, do it at all times. Keep doing it. I fall in, I don't know about you, but I fall into seasons where I just trust God. And I quit praying. I pray the prayer three times, that seems like enough. Maybe for extra measure because I'm really dependent upon it, I'll pray five times, but then it just kind of falls off my radar, and I forget, but I'm just trusting, and I'm just believing God to do something, but Paul's saying, that's not enough. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's your connectivity to God. Number two, it's with focused intensity. He's saying, with all prayer and supplication. That word supplication, I don't have time to go into, but it's intense. It's a sort of begging, but not just begging. It's like begging combined with faith. I don't know how else to say it, but intense. And number three, and he demonstrates it here unselfishly. He's praying for the others. He's asking them to be praying. And he closes oftentimes his letters by saying, please be praying for such and such and so and so and so and so. Oh, and don't forget about me. Pray that my words would be full of boldness, that I wouldn't shrink back, that I would present them just the way they should be with confidence with boldness, with steadfastness, with an eagerness. But I'm challenged again, and I have to continue to be challenged with this. How much am I praying for other people? How much am I praying with other people? How does that compare to how much I'm praying for myself? 
Paul was someone who was constantly praying for the church, praying for other people, praying with other people, and then asking for prayers for himself. That challenges me. That provokes me, especially in the season that we're in, right? Last week, JR asked us to respond individually, and a number of you did, and I'm grateful for the number of you who had the courage and strength to stand up and say, I, I want to I want breakthrough in my life in these areas. I want to break away from some of these things that I've seen in my life. I'd like you to, I want to ask you if you would stand with me and we can pray together, if we could respond together for the church. Like even Paul's trying to provoke the church then. Can we pray for our nation? Can we pray for our community? I will be praying up here, but I really want to provoke you. You pray something. You don't have to pray it out loud. People don't have to hear it. But can God hear you in this moment? With this kind of armor, covered in these kinds of things, we're to be a church who's praying like Paul. Paul's a great example. And he sees and recognizes those pictures of that Roman soldier may be chained to him. He says, I, that translates for me. I get that. I want people to understand. I have to be provoked by God's word and Paul's life sometimes. I want to be quick and I want to be ready, but I also need to be praying because prayer does a certain shaping and a changing of me, not just the things around me. Father, we come before you and we lift up our nation and our country right now and what's going on and what's happening and all the division. Even as we prayed as leaders and as ministry team leaders this morning, God, we want your unity on the earth. We want your unity in our community. God, I thank you that You've called us to live in Helena. We live in a great place. Don't have, and we're grateful for those things, and yet it's not enough. God, we want to see our country come back together. We want to see your church be further established and your kingdom come to the hearts of men, women, and children. God, whatever it would take for hatred and these schemes of the enemy, the confusion that's about right now, God, the pretending the counterfeits that are about, the lies that are being spread, we pray that they would be cut off in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That God, your church and your word would go forth with truth. Not in an uncomfortable sense, not in a guilty and a condemned sense, but in a sense of freedom and mobility. That your kingdom would advance in the hearts of men and women and children. That God, even here specifically at Mount Helena, we would be your church. We would be a church that speaks up and shares and yet isn't offensive and rude and embittered by wrongs and things done to us, but God that has the love of you, of sacrifice and giving. God, I pray this week that your armor would be about us, that we would be about picking up your armor and protecting our minds and our hearts that, God, we would protect ourselves with the truth and that we would see lies clearer than we have. That, God, your truth would be further established in us and our community and our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.